series working through the epistle of 1 Peter. Um, This week we are going to pick up in chapter 2, verse 11, and we will continue through chapter 3, verse 7. Uh, So let me pray for us, and we'll do a quick recap of last week, and we'll get into the text. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you for uh, these great truths that we've been studying. We thank you for the inheritance that we have in Christ. We thank you that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Lord, we pray that we would um, live uh, in a manner pleasing to you, that we would be holy as you are holy. Uh, We thank you for uh, the text we are going to read this morning, and we pray also for uh, the children upstairs, Lord, that you would save each and every one, um, that you would regenerate their hearts, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last week we uh, covered chapter 1, verse 13, all the way through 2.10, and Peter started out that section talking about the mind, and he described that we were to prepare our minds for action, to be sober-minded, to set our hope fully on Christ, and we talked about the battleground of the mind, how the mind is uh, the, the primary battleground in many ways of the Christian life, and we talked about the reality that action follows belief, um, and so our, our unbelief and our idolatry is what underlies our sinful uh, behavior, and how critical the spiritual disciplines are then for transforming our minds. Uh, and then Peter moved on. We talked about uh, God as Father and God as Judge and, and God as Redeemer, um, how we have been ransomed by the precious blood of Christ, and how each of those uh, realities is a, a, um, a motivation. Uh, they, they go together. They're not inconsistent, but they are um, motivations that work together uh, to motivate us toward holy living. Uh, we are to bear the family resemblance um, as adopted sons and daughters of God, we should be marked by holiness. So Peter's saying, be who you are. And he talked about how that includes loving the brotherhood earnestly. Uh, we are to put sin to death in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 um, and 2. Peter lists some sins that are particularly antithetical towards uh, to brotherly love within the church. And then how we are to long for the word as newborn infants long for mother's milk. And the word is how we grow up into maturity. And we talked about how Christ is the cornerstone, the foundation of the church. We had these analogies of the temple, uh, the priesthood, sacrifices, how we as the church are being built up um, into Christ Jesus, into this dwelling place for God, and called to service. And then uh, finally, Peter quoted some texts from the Psalms and from um, Isaiah, and we talked about the two types of people in the world. Um, They talked about how there's the honor for those who believe, Right, and then uh, the stumbling for those who disbelieve. I think we've probably talked about election every week so far in First Peter, but it's just abundantly clear in the book uh, that some Peter says literally some are destined for wrath, some are destined for condemnation, and others are destined for salvation, for eternal life in Christ. Um, and Peter is encouraging the churches that they are destined for life, as he you know describes in verses nine and 10 with these uh, great identifiers, that they are the chosen race, they are these, this holy nation, they've been called out of darkness. And so that is the backdrop then, that, the greatness of that salvation that leads into uh, verse 11. All right, so I'm going to take this uh, kind of piece by piece or paragraph by paragraph. So we're going to read 11 and 12 and then talk about them, and we'll keep moving uh, bit by bit through the passage this morning. All right, 1 Peter 2, 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, 
so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. All right, so verse 11, uh, Peter is focused here on our personal purity. Um, And he starts this by saying the word beloved. He describes his readers as beloved. Um, This is helpful backdrop for us of this command that he's giving to abstain from the passions of the flesh. He's reminding them again that they are um, loved of the Father whose great love prompted him to send his Son to accomplish our redemption, which we talked about in verses 9 and 10. And so this is a helpful uh, perspective-setting word for us as we go into this command to abstain from the passions of the flesh, that this command isn't done to deprive us of joy. It's not done to deprive us of, of pleasure. It's given in the context of the Father's love. It is actually what is best for us. The Father lovingly calls us out of sin into a life of holiness. And so uh, Peter describes these passions of the flesh. Uh, what are the passions of the flesh? Um, these are uh, strong desires for sensual gratification. Um, so this is any number of things. Um, could be lust, could be greed. Really, I think overindulgence in any sort could be a passion of the flesh, uh, whether it's food or drink or pleasure, whatever it is. Uh, Bill Harrell in his commentary, the Let's Let Study series, um, described this as pleasures that become ends in themselves. In other words, idolatry, right? We're seeking ultimate satisfaction in these things rather than viewing God as the source of satisfaction. And so Peter tells us very directly how we are to handle them when he says you, we are to abstain from them. We are not to indulge in them. We are to literally to starve them out. We are to distance ourselves from them. And the reality is that whatever appetites you feed will grow, right? So what, you know, whatever you feed will grow. The more frequently you eat, the more you want to eat, right? The more frequently we spend time in the Word, the more we develop a love for the Word. Um, and so it's imperative for us to abstain from these natural inclinations that we have towards sinful gratification and instead foster a taste for the goodness of the Lord, of the Lord in his word. I mean, Peter gives us um, some reasons why we should abstain from them as well. He says that they um, wage war against your soul. They wage war against our souls. Um, you might think, well, how does that happen? How, you know, how are they waging war against our souls? Well, sin ultimately is what separates us from God, right? Sin is what caused the fall. And even as believers secured by Christ, right, or, you know, we are redeemed, but sin still has damaging effects. You know, sin grieves the Lord who redeemed us. Uh, it prevents us from enjoying fellowship with God. It's an expression of rebellion and unbelief, not an expression of faith. It causes all manner of sorrow and suffering in this life. I mean, most of our unhappiness and discontent is a result of our own sin. Um, and sin also prevents us from being a light and a witness, as he called us to proclaim God's excellencies. Um, we can't really do that if we're caught in the grip of sin. Um, Philippians 2, Paul describes you know, the church as shining like stars in the universe, right? And so it's this image of stars painted on the blackness of the night sky. And so if the church is caught up in sin, we're just as black as the night sky, right? We, we can't shine like stars, as you know, Paul describes in Philippians So they wage war against our soul. Um, They're also unnatural for the believer. Uh, Paul describes us again in verse 11, I think for the third time, as sojourners and exiles. Um, So this this idea of exile is, again, one of the main logical thrusts of Peter's argument for why we should be marked by holy living. 
right? We're sojourners, we're exiles in the world, we are citizens of heaven. Um, and so as such, obedience should be natural. That, sh- that should be our MO as citizens of heaven. Um, and the world of sinful lusts and pleasures should be foreign to us because we are exiles, right? So we're called to be imitators of God, to put the old ways to death um, and not adopt the world's ways of sin. We have this personal purity that Peter is exhorting us to in verse 11. And then in verse 12, uh, he moves on to public piety, right? So our private purity should translate to this public practice of piety. And he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So what he's saying here is that we should be people of integrity, right? That our public lives and our private lives should be the same, that there's no double life going on. Um, the, the question here to ask ourselves, I think, is, is there anything that we're doing in private that we'd be ashamed of other people knowing about? So we should be people of integrity. Um, and, then people de- or, and then Peter describes this uh, slander against the church by the world when he describes that when they speak against you as evildoers. Um, so the church will be slandered. This is going to happen uh, just as Christ was slandered. Um, and Peter, what Peter is saying here, why he's emphasizing integrity, is that by living lives of integrity, we help deflate the slander, so to speak. It, it shows the slander to be baseless. Um, so we are uh, we're to live at peace with all men. We're not to give offense, right? The offense that people take should be the gospel. It shouldn't be our behavior. And I think that's what Peter is getting at here, right? So people should not take offense at us because we're marked by gluttony or drunkenness or laziness or rudeness or sexual immorality, any of these things. The offense should be the gospel. And then Peter, Peter mentions here uh, the day of visitation. He says, when they, see, they may see your good deeds and glorify God of the visita- uh, on the day of visitation. So we have this slander against the church, um, and then uh, that will end on the day of visitation, or at least the, 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 church, the world will glorify God on the day of visitation. And so there's a couple different ideas of what this means. Uh, it could mean either that God is visiting uh, these unbelievers in mercy, and they're, they're going to experience conversion, and they will glorify God in joy because of your faithful witness. You know, looking back on their slander and your faithful witness, they will glorify God because, uh, you know, we are vindicated on that last day, and they have, you know, seen, uh, seen um, the, or I guess looked back, I guess, in a sense, and and seeing that our faithfulness, God used that in part of their conversion. Um, and then the other idea is that God is visiting them in judgment. They will grudgingly acknowledge God's glory and the witness, the faithful witness of his servants on the last day. Uh, we quoted uh, Philippians 2, uh, 11 through 12, I think earlier on, maybe week one. Right? Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right? Whether willing or, or unwilling, every knee will bow. So either way, whether it's a, uh, you know, a glorifying God because of conversion or a glorifying God uh, in judgment, God will be glorified. All right, so we have this uh, personal purity and public piety that Peter lays out for us in verses 11 and 12. And then Peter is going to expand on this uh, theme of the public outworking of the faith and what does that look like in various contexts as we get into verse 13. Uh, verse 13 is a section that he's going to begin that, that runs all the way through 312 on submission and humility. 
Um, and what he's describing is that is this practical way that the believer lives out their faith in the world is a radical life of service and submission to others, which is really countercultural. Um, and this is going to look different in different contexts, right, for husbands and wives, uh, for instance. But the underlying attitude of humility and the motivation of following Christ and obeying him is the same in any context. So we've got these different contexts uh, that we're going to look at uh, Peter will first address the civil context, um, and then economic or business context, and then the family, husbands and wives, um, and then we'll get into the church at the end. Um, today, we're going to get through the first three, ideally, civil, economic, and family, and then we will uh, wrap up the, the uh, verses on the church next week. And one of the things that um, I think is helpful, Edmund Clowney pointed this out um, in his commentary on First Peter, that Peter has been really strongly emphasizing the position and the status of believers leading up to this section, how we are you know, redeemed by Christ. Um, he's described us as this chosen race, the holy nation, the royal priesthood, right? all these identifiers, you know, a people for his own possession. And Peter does it in order that we might proclaim his excellencies, in order that we, we might um, praise God in gratitude. But Clowney pointed out that he also does it to prepare us for this lowly service that he is calling us to. Right? It's precisely because we are God's royal people that we can actually be servants. Right? We don't need our circumstances, our worldly condition uh, to define us because we know that we're chosen by God. We're God's you know, chosen possession, uh, his precious people. We've been chosen from before the foundation of the world. And so this sets us free as the church then to serve others and to submit to others in these different contexts rather than to be served just as Christ did. All right, so looking at the civil context first, First uh, Peter two thirteen to 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. All right, so Peter describes submission to civil authorities uh, in verses 13 and 14 specifically. Um, he uses the word institution here, and this is actually a broader term that, that applies to kind of any and all human institutions. Um, he's focused on civil authority here, and then he's going to get into like other types of institutions like the family uh, later on. Um, so right now we're focused on, uh, you know, as uh, Christians, what, does it look, what is our obligation to these worldly governments that we find ourselves under? So uh, first thing we know, right, is that all authority comes from God. The authority of government comes from God. Paul says this in Romans 13, 1 to 2. Romans 13 says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. All right, so we are to submit to governing authorities because they are authorities instituted by God. And what Peter is saying here in very brief and you know, concise language is that we are to be law-abiding citizens. 
This is what that means, right? That we are to uh, obey whatever laws have been instituted by our governing authorities, whether we personally like them or not. It is the will of God that we obey the civil authorities. And Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake, uh, right? So um, it's our motivation, you know, our motivation to obey comes from our submission to Christ, right? Obeying Christ includes obeying the human authorities that God has set over us. Now, we always want to ask, or or I guess maybe this is just my tendency, is to try and find loopholes. You know, so I'm always thinking, all right, what are are the limits? You know, surely there's some qualifiers here. Uh, I want to do what I want to do, so I want to find some way around, you know, these commands. Um, But I I would just caution us as we think about this, as we talk about the limits to civil obedience, that um, Peter doesn't come in here and throw in a bunch of qualifiers, right? And we see even in the life of Christ, Christ acknowledged Pontius Pilate's authority, even though Pontius Pilate was, right, completely abused that authority. He condemned an innocent man to death. And so I just caution us in, uh, we shouldn't rush to declare civil authority um, as illegitimate, because I don't think scripture does. Uh, So are there limits? You know, when do we disobey? Uh, When would we exercise civil disobedience? Um, And the clear answer is that we exercise civil disobedience when it conflicts with God's law, right? So we have this higher allegiance to Christ, um, and so if the human governments uh, institute laws that are contrary with uh, biblical doctrine or require us to do something that is unbiblical, um, that's when this comes into play. Um, some biblical examples of this that I think are helpful are um, the Hebrew midwives. So if you remember when Israel was in Egypt, Pharaoh actually told the midwives to put to death any uh, male Israelite children that were born, right? And they you know, didn't do that. They refused, and they were blessed for that, right? So that's an example of, you know, an evil ordinance. They were being asked to do something that was clearly sinful, um, and they refused to do so. Um, I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are another clear example of this, right? They're they're commanded to literally bow down to an idol, right, to a physical idol, um, and they rightly don't do so. So Peter um, continues here in this section on government, And he actually describes what the purpose of government is. Um, He says that the purpose of government is to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So government has been instituted by God for good. Uh, Ideally, it should restrain evil and promote justice. That is what it's there for. Um, And again, we, uh, you know, in the... um, in the idea of of finding loopholes, I think sometimes people use this uh, to... um, to raise the question, well, if the government doesn't adhere to this stated purpose, does that nullify our responsibility to submit to it, right? Like, for instance, the government, uh, I'm not going to pay my taxes because the government subsidizes Planned Parenthood, which fosters and um, performs abortions, you know, something like that. And I think the reality is that we're never going to have perfect government in this life, right? We're never going to have a government that actually fulfills its, this purpose that Peter has laid out for us perfectly because it's full of sinful humans, right? And so if we can't obey the government unless it's perfectly fulfilling uh, its, this stated intention here, then we're never going to obey uh, the Scripture's command here to be subject to it. Um, so I think it's a little hard to draw the to figure out where do you draw the line for when a government has failed in that purpose enough that it's no longer legitimate authority. I think the clearer delineation 
is what we talked about before when, when we look at specific ordinances and whether or not specific ordinances are unbiblical. All right. Let me pause there for a second. Any um, questions or yes, Scott? Now, uh, to every yeah, I think it is. I think so. I think when he says human institution, I think it also includes um, like economic sphere, which we're going to get into in, in a minute. Um, and I think it even, the term even includes like the family. Yes, Larry. Well, is, is and so now, if the government establishes public roadways and, and says that there's a, uh, uh, they declare right of, you know, passage, this is a free passageway, and truckers block those roads to protest vaccines, are they in sin? <laughs> uh. Mr. Fender. So, I mean, there, there's complexities to this that we're not going to work out this way, but I think what you said is, is basically right, that big picture, you, you, you can't microanalyze the government. Like, I wish I could, like, my taxes, I could, like, buy a whole budget and someone to fund, right? That's, that's not how it, it works. And so, big picture, yeah, that's what you got to do, right? But there's clearly also a good point, and you gave two good examples. One that comes to mind for me is Acts chapter 4, from Peter and John before the council. You, know, you, you decide whether we should listen to you or, 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 or to God, right? And that's that's got to be the limiting principle. And then the other thing that I've heard tossed around that I want to explore at some point is at what point does it just cease to be a functioning government, right? Like you live in Somalia, right? <laughs> you have to listen to the local warlords. There's there a point at which it just isn't a government anymore. You know, things have deteriorated to the point where it, where they're just a criminal organization, really a government. I'm not I'm not prepared to draw a line there or say what that is, but I think there has, has to be sort of a recognizable. other thoughts or questions? Well, I think about the founding fathers and what, you know, what they did to the king of England. I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you rationalize that? <laughs> I'd say, no, it's a great question. That obviously this country in God's sovereign will became something that's a, a beacon of freedom and all for the whole world. But, but it, during that time, it looked like civil disobedience to the degree of war. That, that is a whole other thing that I'm not going to get into right now, but in my opinion, I think it's hard to justify. Looking, you know, obviously, we're looking back through several hundred years. You know, hindsight is different, but I find it a slight, you know, it's a little hard to, to see that there's really, really good justification for what happened, in my opinion. Yes. It's covered by Providence. There you go. <laughs> Providence. Matt, were you going to say anything else? I do. I've... I, I, thought about this a fair bit, and I, I'm firmly of the view that the American Revolution was not a just war, that they were in sin. You know, God may have used it for good, but, but ultimately, if you think about like what they were complaining about, right, their taxes were too high, really? Because <laughs> 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 they were paying compared to what we pay today, it was laughable, right? There's no basis for it whatsoever, but they were just wrong. All right, let's move on here. Otherwise, we're never going to get to the family. All right, so Christian liberty. Uh, yes, on that note. Uh, Christian liberty. So 15 to 17, uh, Peter, he's kind of continuing this idea of, of authority, but he, he uh, talks about liberty in the sense of doing good. So he describes doing good in verse 14, 
And then he says in 15, for this is the will of God, by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Um, So this term, doing good, this is the same term used above um, when he's talking about the government praises those who do good, and he's describing again this idea of being conscientious, law-abiding citizens. He's saying, be above reproach. Um, And so how does doing good silence opposition to the gospel? Well, at the end of the day, it's a little hard to argue against integrity and uprightness and upstanding moral behavior, right, and kindness, right? These are, these are things that are hard to argue against. And so if the world slanders the church and the church is characterized by these things, um, it deflates those arguments. Um, it also protects the Christian from claims of being subversive to the government, which I think is part of this. Um, in the Roman era, right, Christians were accused of all sorts of crazy things, like, you know, incest, um, cannibalism, sedition, right, all sorts of wild claims, and so what Peter is saying is, as the church, we are to, to continue to live morally upstanding and quiet lives, and that that helps put the lie to those kind of wild accusations. All right, so then he says, live as people who are free. Live as people who are free. So what are we free from? Right, that's the, that is the question we need to answer as we think about this text. Um, and when the Bible describes freedom in Christ... It's almost always in relation to our prior bondage to sin. We are free from sin. Uh, that is the primary context of our freedom. Uh, Romans 6 talks about this at great length, describing this, this freedom from sin. We're free from the slavery, from the bondage of it. Um, and so what are we to do with that freedom? And uh, Peter uh, describes very clearly here um, that we are not to use, he says, not to use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but to live as servants of God, right? We are set free to do good, whereas before, when we were in bondage to sin, we were unable to do good, right? So in our freedom, we are called to serve God and to specifically live in submission to these various authorities that God has put in our place, uh, has put in place, whether civil government, employers, or family members. Um, Christian liberty is not an excuse to, to go out and do whatever we want. It's not an excuse to push to the push the limits, the boundaries of sin, its goal is to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And by the power of the Spirit, we're actually enabled to start doing the things that are pleasing to God, which we could not do before. So it's not freedom from responsibility. It's freedom to uh, properly exercise our responsibilities. Peter gives us four practical ways to do this in verse 17. So he lists these four just brief statements here. Um, Honor everyone. As the first one. Honor everyone. Uh, this is convicting for me. You think about honoring everyone. It's so inclusive. It means, you know, it's, every, it's literally everyone. Um, so what he's meaning here is that we should be treating everyone with respect, with politeness, with common courtesy, being mannerly. Um, it means not showing partiality, building others up rather than tearing them down. Um, it doesn't mean that we have to be everyone's best friend but it does mean that we should extend courtesy to everyone and that we should avoid things like talking about them behind their backs. So honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Um, Love the brotherhood. This is the members of the church. Uh, Peter's describing uh, loving the church here. Um, In 122, he described how we were to do this, that we're to do it earnestly. Uh, Love is an action word, right? It's not a feeling. We are to serve the body. We're to care for one another. And Rick is always uh, quick to point out that 1 Corinthians 13 right, is not a marriage passage. It's, it's describing how we are to act as members of the church toward one another. 
Um, so when Peter says, love the brotherhood, uh, I think a great place for us to turn is 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, 4 to 7 describes what does this look like. Uh, well, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So when Peter says love the brotherhood, we are to be marked by these kinds of behaviors toward one another. We are to be patient with one another. We are to be kind. We are not to hold a record of wrongs. Right? We're not to be arrogant or rude, et cetera, et cetera. All right, so honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. This should sound familiar. We talked about the fear of the Lord uh, last week at, at some length, um, how we are to view God with reverence and awe and respect, how there's this, this healthy fear that we should have of God, um, and how God is the only one that we should fear. Right? We honor uh, other humans in positions of authority, but we are to fear him alone who has power over the soul. Um, and this a proper fear of the Lord is actually necessary for obeying the rest of the biblical commands that we see. It's the fear of the Lord that motivates us to submit to others out of reverence for Christ. Fear of the Lord, and then finally, honor the emperor. Um, coming back to the civil sphere directly, um, I think what Peter is getting at here is the way that we view and speak about our uh, civil authorities. So for us, how do we speak about the president? How do we speak about uh, congressmen? How do we speak about our governor or our mayor? Um, especially when we disagree with them. I think what Peter is saying here is that we are not to defame them. We are not to belittle them. Uh, we should speak of them with respect. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't call out our governing authorities for acting improperly or for, or for, for failing to do what they should do, right, to fulfill their, their biblical responsibilities. But I think the way that we do it is critical. Um, and I think we should be careful about especially about like making jokes about people in office, for instance. I think also praying for them is a critical way that we actually show them honor. Um, they are worthy of our intercession regardless of how ungodly their personal lives or their public policies might be. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4 captures this well. Paul says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So the, this list um, is not the list that I would come up with if you told me to exercise my freedom, right? But this is a call, Peter's calling us to really to put self-centeredness to death, right? And to live in an other-centered manner. All right, we'll move on to economic sphere. 1 Peter 2, 18 to 20. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure... This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. All right, so Peter now describes uh, submission to masters, specifically talking about uh, economic sphere, business relationships. Um, and Peter really jumps straight to the, the toughest working uh, relationship to illustrate his point about the, the whole context. 
Um, so Bill Harrell pointed out that if the grace of God can enable, enable a man in slavery to live to the glory of God, um, that can, it can certainly enable anyone in less trying working relationships to do so as well. And so the slaves are called to serve faithfully um, and honestly. Uh, Harold pointed out again that victim status is not an option for the believer. You know, we are not victims of circumstances because of the sovereignty of God. That's uh, just not true of us. We are more than conquerors in Christ. Um, and really, you know, thinking in light of the inheritance that Peter's described, whether a man uh, lives out this short pilgrimage on earth as a prince or as a pauper is really irrelevant compared to the surpassing greatness of the salvation and the inheritance that we have in Christ. Um, and so when, when God calls for service and submission on the part of slaves following the example of his son, right, even slaves, even in that really difficult uh, situation, uh, should cheerfully obey. And note that Peter uh, extends this call even in injustice, right? So uh, Matthew Henry pointed out, I think this is a helpful way to think about it, is that sin by one party doesn't um, excuse sin by another party, right? So just because the person in authority here, the, the master or your boss, uh, is abusing their position to some extent, it doesn't mean that we then have a right to, uh, to, to sin against them or to sin against God because of that situation, right? So we are you know, sl- slaves here have this duty to submit to the masters that isn't nullified by sin on the part of the masters. Um, so we are called to trust God in adverse situations, um, and this includes even, you know, slave-master relations- relationships. Can you define slave then and now? Two different things. Define slave then and now. Uh, People went into slavery because they didn't have any money. In some cases. Like indentured servitude. Slave back in those days, you were serving in the household. But slavery then, your master was obligated to take care of you. Feed you, clothe you, house you. It's not the slavery of cotton fields and uh, uh, whipping and hanging. To provide for the slave. Yeah. I think in that culture, yeah, it was very different than like slavery in the U.S. I think it's what you're saying, buddy. Slavery. And everybody goes crazy. In both cases, it says ownership. Who wants to be owned by somebody else? Oh yeah, you're talking about Abraham's servant. Yeah. Who, who if they would if this didn't turn out, who would get all he had? I mean, not slavery in these days as we see it today. Yeah, so there's different, there have been different forms of slavery throughout history. I think the point, the point that Peter's making here is this attitude of submission, right, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Yeah. Barring, of course, the exception that if your master is commanding you to sin against God, yeah, yeah. then you have to disobey that, regardless of whether or not it's in... 
pastor is saying, you may not worship God, you may not read the Bible, or you may not pray, or anything that, that is contrary to God's law that you, you can and must disobey. But, oh, I agree with you. I'm but, not, I that uh, I guess so we can you know, they can't. All you got to do is pay taxes. You can worship who you want to. True, unless you're taken in battle and then you're made a slave. That's how most slaves, that's how most people were slaves back then. Just about it. And then you became a slave. These texts were used to justify our slavery, weren't they? Mm-hmm. I mean, slave owners. What, is there, yes, go ahead, Rick. I was going to say, just completely changing the subject. I'm typically more interested in the, the sins that, that I'm likely to commit. And I don't think I'm going to uh, put some slaves. When I was working in corporate America, it seemed to me that one of the favorite pastimes of people of corporate America is to complain about the boss or management. I assume you have that you have that same experience now. I, you know, I think the finger needs to come back to us. We are we as members of all things to complain about those whom the Lord has placed over us in our economic situation. Did everyone hear that? That's a fantastic point. Thank you, Rick. It's always us and them. Right. Yeah. And and uh, and so if you are, you know, let's say even you get passed over for a promotion, right, because you're a Christian, you are still to continue diligently working for your manager, right? That's exa- essentially what Peter is getting at, right? He describes beatings here. None of us are going to get beaten in the workplace, right? But there's other types of um, persecution, I guess, or bad things that will happen to us, could happen to us as a result. And the reason for us to do this, right, or, or um, excuse me, before we get to that, um, he says it's a gracious thing in the sight of God when we suffer unjustly, right? So God gives us grace to endure when suffering unjustly. Um, and uh, Peter's saying that God is, was, um, is pleased with humility, with patient endurance uh, in this unjust suffering. Right? There's no value or honor in suffering for our own sinful behavior, but suffering for righteousness' sake is what is commendable. Um, and so there's no gain, right, in performing poorly at work and then uh, suffering for it, or in this case, the slave, performing poorly and getting beaten for it, right? But if they were punished unjustly and yet responded without repaying evil for evil, that is a great witness to the transformative power of the gospel. And that's ultimately what Peter is driving at here. Is it's our response to, the, to injustice that is so critical. And so Peter holds out here the example of Christ as the ultimate motivation for us in doing so. First uh, Peter two twenty one to twenty five. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin; neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. All right, so we have this this great example of Christ who we follow into injustice and suffering. Um, And note how Peter says, to this you have been called, meaning suffering, right? So there's all these things we've been called to, or you know, Peter said we're called to obedience to, to Jesus Christ and a sprinkling with his blood. Yes, right? We're called to 
Uh, we're called living stones, chosen and precious. Yes, right. We're called a chosen race, a holy, ro- uh, you know, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Yes, we're called out of darkness and marvelous light. And then he says we are called to suffer, right? And it's our calling because it was Christ's calling. I mean, you know, put that on the brochure when someone says, "What is God's will for my life?" Oh, God's will for your life is for you to suffer, right? But um, uh, we are called to follow this example of Christ. And what Peter is specifically saying here is that um, sometimes, so sometimes we suffer for the sake of our own sin, but Peter is describing um, suffering for the sake of the gospel, kind of innocent or suffering uh, because of our association uh, with Christ, that we are to patiently bear injustice for the sake of the gospel. Um, and I don't think this means that we're just doormats, that we never seek uh, redress for wrongs committed against us. Um, but that we should specifically be prepared to suffer disadvantage or reproach because of the name of Christ. Rebecca and I were in Indonesia several years ago, and we learned there that uh, um, believers are barred from certain professions. So the government records everyone's religious affiliation, and if you identify as a Christian, you just can't go into certain professions. That's a great example of suffering disadvantage for the name of Christ. So Peter um, highlights these three elements in Christ's response to suffering that are helpful for us. Uh, in 2.22, he says that he did not sin. So he didn't use suffering as a rationale for sin or for indulging himself. We talked about last week how we're so prone to self-indulgence. Uh, we can think this way. Life has been so hard lately. I deserve a little fill in the blank, right? And that is not an option for us. Um, he also did not lash out at his uh, persecutors. It says he didn't revile or threaten. Right? He didn't defend himself. He left the battle to the Lord. Um, and it says explicitly that he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself to God. Um, and that's an amazing statement when you think that Christ entrusted himself to God, and that meant the cross for him, right? which he did not deserve at all. Uh, so we, too, then, are called to that example of trusting in the sovereignty of a loving Father who has ordained whatever trials we go through uh, for our good in his own wisdom. And then Peter says, uh, describing our redemption, uh, that he, are, he bore our sins, that he willingly undertook his suffering to accomplish our redemption. Um, this whole section here is so closely related to Isaiah 53 that I imagine that Peter was meditating on Isaiah 53 uh, when he wrote this paragraph, because if you look at Isaiah 53, like a side-by-side, it just kind of tracks all the way down. Um, Isaiah 53, 12, uh, I'm just going to summarize this uh, for, the, for the sake of time, describes literally the same language, that he bore the sins of many. Um, Christ received the punishment that was our due. Um, he bore the curse of the law. Peter says literally, he describes this as, um, uh, being, uh, as the tree. Uh, what is the what does it say exactly, in his body, on the tree. Uh, That's a reference to the curse in the law, Deuteronomy 21, where anyone hanged on a tree is cursed by God. And so what Peter is saying is that um, Christ has literally borne the curse of the law that we might be uh, reckoned as law keepers. And then Peter uses these three analogies to drive his point home, Um, talking about death versus life. Uh, Christ suffered that we might uh, die to sin and live to righteousness. We might, we might be accounted righteous in Christ. Uh, this is very similar to Romans 6, uh, 10 and 11. It uses this, this similar language. Um, Paul says 
that uh, the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So also you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Peter describes, uh, by his wounds you have been healed. We have wounds and healing. Uh, this is a, uh, an Old Testament uh, metaphor, is this one of wounds. Uh, we see this in multiple places, um, such as Isaiah, uh, or excuse me, Hosea 5.13. Right? The people of God are wounded because of their sin. And this is not inconsistent with Ephesians, which says we're dead in our transgressions, because the wound is described as incurable. Right? It's, a, it's an incurable wound that we have in the Old Testament. And so Christ is this great physician who, as Isaiah 53 says, was wounded for our transgressions. So he's, he's playing off this wounds and healing uh, theme. He was, or we have been healed by his, by his wounds. Um, and then we have strain versus returning, our last opposite that Peter lists here. You were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Um, the church, God's people, are routinely uh, compared to sheep or described as sheep in Scripture, which is not a compliment. Um, Isaiah 53, like we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Um, and then there's passages that we love, right? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord, there's the shepherding analogy. Um, so here, Christ is described as the shepherd instead of the sacrificial lamb that he was described as in chapter 1. Um, and this is what John 10, 11 says, right? That Christ, he says, I'm the good shepherd, right? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so we have strayed from God, but the good shepherd laid down his life he went to seek and save the lost to bring us back into the fold. And so this example for us is, is then that given all that Christ has done for us, then surely we who have been spared the wrath of God can bear with some reviling, some reproach in this life um, for the name of Christ because we have not received what we have deserved, because Christ has borne that punishment. And ultimately, when we think about submission, the submission that God is calling us to is submission to himself. Right? It's submission to his will and to his plans and to his purposes. So Christ submitted himself to the will of the Father, even though it meant suffering for himself. And we are called to that exact same uh, submission. And so submission to God is demonstrated by submission in these various human spheres that we're discussing. All right. The question now is, Given how much time we have, should I launch into the next section? Yes, Deborah. Um, this business of obeying your master. And I'm thinking about the example of what we call a whistleblower. And if, if you see something that's going wrong, or you think it's wrong. See, that's, 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 that's the thing, yeah, you see. Um, are you under obligation to obey your employer, or if you don't like it, just quit and go get another job, or you have an obligation, authority, to report you think is an illegal act, which comes first. So Deborah's bringing up the example of um, whistleblowing, whistleblowers, and relates in relation to submission to um, employers. And yeah, versus civil authority. So yeah, I mean, I would say if it's illegal, right? If what's happening is is illegal, then the right thing to do would be to 
go to the civil authorities. That's a ladder to climb. Mm-hmm. I said, that's a dangerous ladder to climb. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm thinking particularly about this, the, the recent big trial that we saw against a woman in California um, for the company that she started. And the people who originally blew the whistle on her, it was because they thought she wound up being prosecuted for fraud. They blew the whistle on her because they thought that she was um, not being particularly upfront about how uh, how the equipment was working. And they they knew that the equipment was not working as she said it was working. So, whereas there were two or three of them who who went to civil authorities, but they went to uh, where it would do the most good. They went to um, a, a, a journalist who who wrote the story exposed it. So um, now she was—I uh, don't know—it was a very complicated case. But it's—it uh, it seems that in in some instances, the and I'm thinking uh, and 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 you can kind of sorta. Uh, uh, use the analogy of Joseph, who he he didn't he just stayed and did what he was told, even though he had done nothing wrong, and he knew that Mrs. Potiphar was the one who was lying, but he didn't try to tell Mr. Potiphar, uh, "Oh, your your wife is lying, and and I'm innocent." So if we have a, a, a similar situation in in our workplace. You're not making sense here. Was it diminishing what is sinful? Yes. That's what you're trying to get at. If it's yes. unlawful, then it might be an obligation. If it's sinful, well, everyone's sinful. I'm sorry? I said if it's sinful, then everyone's sinful. Yes. And, oh, 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 yes, I did read it going with that Um. So if you don't like the fact that your boss is is um, cheating in their in their marriage, then you either choose to stay and work for the well, boss. You know, it's not saying you're condoning that, but you might you can't control the marriage. Well, it might be her. <laughs> right, exactly. But I'm saying if, if if you see that that violates. Um, something that you hold very preciously, and as Christians we should, the sanctity of marriage, do you you tell the spouse, or do you just walk away and say it's none of my business? The overarching principle you're looking for is in 16, uh, to use it as slaves of God, and that he is our ultimate master, and I think you're trying to parse out how do we do that wisely, in all these complicated scenarios. I don't know if we're going to have an overarching wise principle that fits every single scenario. But the principle would be to consider ourselves slaves to God. Yeah. I, I think we got to wrap up here. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for us and we can continue discussing afterwards. All right. Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you. Thank you again for your word. Lord, we pray uh, for grace and for wisdom, Lord, to... Um, to live uh, wisely, to live as servants and representatives of uh, Christ on this earth. 
Um, we thank you for the example that we have of Christ. Uh, thank you that you have borne our sins uh, in your body on the tree, that we've been healed uh, by your wounds, Lord Jesus. We thank you for that. Uh, we pray that we would grow in gratitude for what you have done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.